Well, good morning, Life Point. Good morning, Life Point. Good morning. Good morning. I am obviously not Ed Travers. I apologize uh, for that. My name uh, is Dean uh, Folks. I'm the lead pastor at Life Point, and maybe you're brand new and you don't know that we are one church located in five different places uh, and spaces. And for some of you, um, part of the painful part of multiplication is that I don't get to see you um, on a weekly basis. We used to church together every week, but when you guys multiplied out here and we started Life Point Westerville. Uh, I miss you guys, and it is, it is uh, great to be able to be with you. All of our teaching pastors this morning have rotated, so Ed is up in Marion uh, this morning up there at our new campus, or newer campus, I should say, um, up there. So if you are our guest, if today is day number one uh, for you, I would invite you right now to take out your smartphone, uh, open up your camera app, and point it at the QR code on one of the chairs that's in front of you, and do that for two reasons. One is that there are message notes that are available there. Uh, my message notes are going to be there. Not that that's a big deal. Uh, but you can type in your own notes as we go along. The message notes are interactive. And then email those to yourself at the end just so you have a reminder maybe of something that God says to you, speaks to you uh, today throughout the service. The second thing that's there is that there's a guest information card. And if you would take less than a minute and fill out that digital card, um, there are five different ministries that are listed there at the bottom of that card. You choose one. One. We're already partnered with all five, but you choose one, and um, we'll make an additional $5 donation to that ministry partner just to give you the opportunity to make a difference uh, in somebody's life uh, just by letting us know that you were here and, uh, and that you were with us today. So our Christmas series this year is called Uncommon Crown. This is week number two, and the whole idea of the series is this tension that we feel uh, where we attempt to establish our own little personal monarchies, right? Our own little personal kingdoms where we think my perspective is the right perspective, my view is the right view, my agenda is the right uh, agenda. And so we're reminding ourselves this Christmas season of this big idea every week that Jesus came to establish his kingdom, uncommon king with an uncommon crown, and he does it in an uncommon way because he's establishing this kingdom, not in a visible way necessarily for the world to see as much as it is. He's establishing his kingdom in our hearts. And you're like, what well, is that that big of a not that big of a deal. I think it is uh, because whenever we get to Christmas every season, uh, I just, I'm just reminded that everybody is comfortable, right, with the, the monarch in the manger, right? Everyone loves the baby Jesus. But what happens um, at Christmas is that it's like Jesus and chestnuts roasting over an open fire and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Frosty the Snowman and Jack Frost nipping at your nose and we throw in some candy canes and some eggnog and some Christmas parties and some trees and some presents and it's like Christmas. It's like all just kind of gets washed um, in together when the reality is that Christmas really starts and ends with just everybody's comfortable with the baby Jesus. Cue Talladega Nights references. Uh, but what happens is that the baby in the manger, right, he grows up. And when Jesus grows up, he says things like, take up your cross and follow me. He says the way to find your life is to lose your life. And that changes things. Actually, that changes everything, right? Because Jesus doesn't come and claim to be a king. He comes and he claims to be the king. And if he's the king, then the question becomes, is he your king? And if you verbalize, if you say that he is my king, what are the implications for his reign in your personal 
life. Because it's one thing to say that Jesus is my king. It's another thing to show that Jesus is my king in the ways that we have. It's one thing to verbalize it. It's a completely different thing. Completely different thing to value it. So we started the series off um, last week, 700 years pre-Jesus, 700 years B.C., with uh, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. It's a verse that gets quoted a lot because it is a, it's a prophecy about the coming Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And so what we're doing uh, is we're really looking at these, these names. One of those we looked at last week, I'm sure you looked at Wonderful Counselor and the meaning of that. And today, really, I want to look at one of those other names. If you've got a copy of the scriptures and you want to turn to Isaiah 9, you can do that. It says this, for, uh, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So thinking today a little bit about what Isaiah says, that when he comes, he will be Mighty God. Uh, parenthetically, um, Isaiah, like I said, was written 700 years before Jesus was ever around. Now, Sometimes we just tend to roll over that reality. Uh, there's a guy, his name is Alfred Edersheim. I'll show you his uh, picture up here behind me. In 150 or so years, he looks like a real fun guy, right? Invite him to your Christmas party. Um, Edersheim read through the Old Testament, and he found 465 messianic prophecies. So in other words, 465 times the Messiah is mentioned in the Old Testament, and then later on fulfilled in the person of Jesus. That is amazing when you think about it. Um, mathematicians looked at it and they said, okay, let's say there was just, forget about 465. Let's say there were just 100 maybe prophecies that somebody fulfills thousands of years. That would be amazing. And by the way, in your notes, um, you'll notice there as you're looking through them, I put a link there to a website called gotquestions.org, which Again, parenthetically, is a great. If you ever have a question about scripture or something you think about, it's a great website. I believe our own John McAdam, who goes here to uh, the Westerville campus, John is the one whose team put together the redesign on the website uh, for Got Questions uh, last year. It's a fantastic website. Um, but I put a link there if you want to go do some more research. There's a hundred prophecies listed that Jesus fulfills thousands of years later. But a comparable. Um, would be this. If somebody fulfilled eight prophets, let's just say there were eight of them, the math on that looks something like this. If you covered the state of Texas in quarters two feet deep and you colored one red and you blindfolded somebody and you walked them out as long as they wanted to walk on those quarters. And whenever they wanted to, they could bend down and randomly put their hand as far into those quarters and they would randomly wherever they want and they would pick up the red quarter anywhere in the state of Texas. Those are the odds of someone just fulfilling eight prophecies, let alone 465. So when we think about what Jesus is coming, think about mighty God. For me, I don't see that um, as much or any more than in the Christmas story than in Matthew chapter 1. Now, if you are going to read Matthew chapter 1 to your kids, you're going to gather up the kids, you're going to gather up the, the grandkids, right, to read the Christmas story to them. If you get to Matthew chapter 1, you're going to start in verse 18. I almost guarantee it, right? 
Yeah, the birth of Jesus was on this wise, and Mother Mary was his spouse, his father Joseph, da 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 Verse 18, you're going to totally skip the first. Uh, so let's just pretend we were going to do that. I've asked Tyler, cue up a little Christmas music. All the kids got their candy canes around, right? You're going to read the Christmas story to them, and you're going to start in Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 4. Okay. And Aram begat Abinadab, and Abinadab begat Nason. And the Aesop begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Booze of Rechab. And Booze, by the way, I love it. I love it. I love it that the King James translators translated Boaz, the Hebrew, as Booze. Because doesn't everybody have an Uncle Booze at Christmas, right? <laughs> and Booze begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat, or Obed, uh, begat Jesse, right? Doesn't that just feel, just feels like Christmas, doesn't it? These are um, not so affectionately referred to as the begats. These are the parts of the Bible that when you read it, you're like, why is this stuff even in here? Right? What in the world is Matthew trying to accomplish when he writes these first 17 verses? And Matthew's point is what he's doing is he's giving us the Ancestry.com, if you will, of Jesus. If you've seen the ads for Ancestry.com, you know, like, give the gift of Ancestry this Christmas, right? Matthew is giving us a gift by providing us with the family tree of Jesus. To Matthew's Hebrew listeners, this is essential. He has to start this way because they believed that the Messiah would come from a messianic, the, the messianic bloodline of the Messiah had to be tied to the kings. It had to be tied all the way back to Abraham. He had to prove to these Hebrews that Jesus was going to fulfill the ancestry of the Messiah. So, he has to prove that his bloodline is royal, but at the same time, I think he has to kind of prove that it's real. And what I mean by that is that when you get to Matthew chapter 1, just by way of reminder, there's a 400-year gap in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 400 years. The people go without a prophet. The people go without hearing what they norm, where they were normally used to in the Old Testament, which was a word come from heaven to them through the voice of a prophet, through the voice of a leader. They go without that for 400 years. And I just wonder if the people in Israel thought, man, those are great stories. Joshua and Elijah, those are great stories. But I don't see any stories happening today. I just wonder if they thought, man, yeah, that's, that's great and all, and these are nice traditions and the festivals and the Passover and all of that, but it kind of feels like God's forgotten about us. And I wonder, this Christmas season, if there's anybody in this room who feels the same way. Like, is God even listening to my prayers is he even hearing what I am voicing to him? Because it's nice to have the Bible and all those stories that Ed stands up here every week and tells us, all those stories are great, but I don't see those stories. I don't see the Christmas story in my story because it feels like God has forgotten about his people. It feels like God has forgotten about me. It feels like God has forgotten about his promises. Because as much as a lot of us, or maybe even most of us, love Christmas, 
there's a lot of people who don't enjoy Christmas. Christmas is a reminder of loss, maybe loss this year or maybe loss in a previous year, a relationship. It's broken, fractured, a business deal, gone bad, a busted up, uh, maybe a busted up marriage uh, that's fractured, that's hurting, or, or maybe, uh, maybe a family member that you love, a mom, a dad, a grandmother, a grandfather that are no longer, that are no longer with you. That's why Elvis Presley made a gazillion dollars, right? Singing Blue Christmas. That's right, right? Elvis, you'll be doing all right with your Christmas of white, but I'll have a, not just a blue, (laughs) blue, 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 right? Christmas. Because Christmas just is, it's not always what we dream and hope and want and what we project it to be. So here's what Matthew's gonna do. Matthew's giving us a gift. And we're going to see it in three ways in, in Matthew chapter 1, in the first 17 verses. We're going to look at it from the perspective of a microscope, a telescope, and a stethoscope. He's going to give us three Christmas secrets in the genealogy um, of the Messiah. So um, look back there. We'll pick it up in verse 1. It says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. Now, if you're writing a genealogy, you're going to start where? All the way back at the beginning, right? Which makes sense why Matthew mentions Abraham. What does not make sense is why Matthew mentions David. David is smack in the middle of the genealogy. He's not at the beginning of it. He's not at the end of it. So why does he mention David from the beginning? You're like, probably making a big deal about nothing, Dean. Just to prove to you that I'm not. Whenever he wraps up the genealogy in verse 17, here's what he says. So all the genealogies from Abraham to David were 14 generations. Why all this uh, comment and commentary about David? David was, um, the best way I can describe it is that David was a cultural icon in in their world. Um, they looked up to David. When they, when they thought about Messiah, they thought about Messiah is going to do two things. He's going to defeat Israel's enemies. Remember, they were living under Roman occupation, right? Some of them taxed as much as 80%. They were paying as much as 80% in taxes to Rome. Rome had murdered countless thousands um, of Hebrews at the time. So they thought, number one, Messiah is going to, he's going to defeat Israel's enemies. And number two, he's going to restore Israel's worship. Think about what David did, right? David comes on the scene, 1 Samuel 16, 1 Samuel 17. What's the first thing he does? He defeats Goliath, right? He defeats Israel's enemies, the Philistines, or at least leads in that charge. What's the second thing um, when you think about David? What do you think? What the, well, or think about the last, of the last thing he does in his life, really, publicly. He presents these, these plans and these diagrams for the temple. He restores Israel's worship. This temple that he will never execute. He lays out the plan and the foundation. He does everything they believed and that they wanted the Messiah to do. He actually, um, he's actually so popular in Hebrew culture that they gave Messiah a nickname. And the nickname for the Messiah, the one they planned for, looked for, hoped for, the one that was going to defeat their enemies and restore their worship, they called him the son of David. That's what they called their Messiah. A comp for us maybe would be David was their Superman. He was the one that they were looking for, looking to the one that was a little bit stronger, a little bit better, a little bit more noble than everybody else. And the reason I told you all of that 
is because this is not random on Matthew's part. Because when Matthew mentions David in the middle of the genealogy in verse 6, here's how he mentions David. And Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife um, of Uriah. It's very um, both interesting and intentional that whenever he says David, he says, well, David, you know, David, um, he's from Jesse and Jesse. And what he should say, and David begat Solomon by, the, by his wife Bathsheba. He should, men- the, he should mention her by name, right? Because, the reason I say that is because when other females are mentioned in the genealogy, when Ruth is mentioned, it says Ruth's name. When Rahab is mentioned, it, it uses Rahab's personal name. Why does Matthew use Why does he identify Bathsheba not by her name, but by her husband? It's a very specific point that Matthew is putting David on blast here. Before David was ever king, he was a fugitive from justice. He, um, well, not all of you are going to remember the show Cops, but David would have been on the show Cops, right? He was on the run from the law. Um, he was the bad boys, bad boys, right? He was on the run from King Saul. He was a fugitive from justice. And while he was running from Saul, he gathered up men. Matter of fact, later in his life, he refers to them as his mighty men. There were 30 of them that he talks about. And these men voluntarily became outlaws to support, to risk their lives for David. One of them was a guy named Uriah the Hittite. Once David finally becomes king, these 30 men become the leaders in his kingdom, the leaders of his army, and Uriah is married to Bathsheba. Now, if you're asking yourself the question, wait a minute, how does David have a child with Bathsheba if Bathsheba is married to Uriah? You're asking a great question because it shouldn't work that way, right? Because what King David does at one weak point in his life, he's been king for a long time, while Uriah is out fighting a battle. So think about this. Uriah is risking his life for King David. David is home, and David has an illicit affair with his best friend or one of his best friend's wives. She becomes pregnant. David cannot cover it up because he tries. And in not being able to finally cover it up, he actually has his best friend, Uriah, one of his best friends, murdered in the private. You're like, this sounds like the Kardashians, not the Bible, right? But it's, it's all in there. And Matthew is making a... He, Matthew's like, this is the guy you want to be your Messiah? David? There's a, a little book uh, that was written well, decades and decades ago now by a guy named Milton Rokich. And Rokich was a... Um, he was a graduate student in psychology in Ypsilanti, Michigan, and um, doing dissertation work. And so while he was there working, doing clinical hours at a mental health facility, he came upon um, three different guys from Ypsilanti, from that same facility, who all believed that they were the Messiah. They all believed they were the one sent from God to save the world. And none of them were getting any better. So Rokich has this brilliant idea. He said, you know, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to get all three of these guys in the same room together. So kind of like a little 12-step 
you know, recovery group for messiahs or something like that. He gets all three of these guys. He names them in, the, in his work, Leon, Clyde, and Joseph. That's what he calls them, right? So he gets them all in a room, and they're fascinating conversations. Like, he would say to, you know, Leon, he would say, you know, uh, Leon, tell me more about yourself. He said, well, I am the Messiah sent from God to save the world. And he would say, Leon, how do you know that? And he would say, God told me. And one of the other ones would say, I never told you that. Like these fascinating conversations that they have. And, and none of the three of them ever really get any better necessarily. But he coins a term in the, in the work that still sticks with us today. It's called a Messiah complex. Probably heard that psychological term. I thought we'd write a new book. And we'd call it the Three Christs of Columbus, Ohio. Except the number's way too small. The reality is all of us have a Messiah complex from a spiritual perspective. All of us think our way is the best way. Our ideas are the best ideas. Our perspective is the best perspective. And our agenda is the best agenda. Even if we don't voice it and we don't say it out loud, we all have this pull. We all have this tendency to become our own saviors. To think somehow, some way, we're smart enough, savvy enough, um, uh, successful enough to do life without God, or at least to do life with just as much of God as we have to have for him to bless us, but not so much that I completely bring my life underneath his authority. Instead of maybe giving him the uncommon crown, what really happened is I kind of want to wear the crown. The song that we sang earlier, there's no one like you, you know what to catch in the next line, and there's no one beside you. We would all say, right, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, we'd all say, well, there's no one like you. But besides you, I could really be helpful to you, Jesus. If you would just listen to me and the way that I want to do things and the way that I see things, there's a struggle. There's this internal battle that I don't know if you see it and sense it, but I see it and sense it in my own heart, in my own life. And when you look at the genealogy of Jesus, the secret of the microscope, right, is that when you draw it up really, really tight, the microscope teaches us that none of us belongs. None of us. None of us is perfect. None of us, uh, we tend to gauge each other. We're better than each other. We're worse than each other. Well, and certainly our choices and decisions have varying levels of consequences, but we all have things that we wish we could go back and undo. We all have things that we wish we could go back and we could change. But what we really have to come to the place where we admit is that none of us is good enough. The microscope teaches us no one belongs. So good news for you this Christmas. Your family Jesus' family is just as jacked up as your family is, right? You look back at the ancestry of Je you know, um, Uncle Boo's notwithstanding. You look back at the, at the genealogy of Jesus and there's, um, there's, there's abuse, there's incest, uh, sexual. I mean, all of it is in there. That's just one generation, by the way. You look through at all the names, it's just like your family. Why is it? Because it's all of us. And because we couldn't save ourselves. Christmas. The meaning of Christmas is that God had to come. So we sing what? Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. We sing in that song that you were pleased with men <laughs> to dwell. That somehow it made you pleased to come down here, to condescend to us, to bend towards us, to become one of us. Which leads us to the second reality. Not just the microscope, but the telescope. 
So the microscope is gonna teach us that none of us belongs, that all of us are flawed, all of us are sinful, all of us are alienated from God from the moment we're born into this world, but that's okay. Because the telescope teaches us that because of what Jesus has done, anybody can come, anybody can belong. Here's how the genealogy rounds out in verse 17. I read the first uh, part of it to you earlier, but I'll read the, the full ending to the genealogy. It says this, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, there were 14, uh, there were 14 generations. All right, so Matthew lays out uh, this summary form. So he telescopes back out of the individual life to life to life to life. And he gives us this big picture perspective. And what he says is, start with Abraham and you get to David. There are 14 generations, right? And then he says from David to the exile or to the captivity, 14 generations. And then from captivity, you get to where we are today. In Matthew's today, he would have said 14 generations. Now, you and I read that and we're like, oh, huh. That's interesting. If Hebrews would have, I mean, the people who would have originally read this would have read it completely differently. The King James translators did as, as well as they could do in translating this because what it literally says is from Abraham to David, there were seven sevens. And the Hebrew translators look at that and they're like, or excuse me, the King James translators look at that and they're like, what in the world? Because the reality is, what, I mean, what does seven sevens mean? And the closest they could come was to say, well, it's 14 generations. The word begat means ancestor of, not father of. That's very important. Because what Matthew does not provide in the genealogy of Jesus, I mean, I don't think he could have done it, right? In what would that be from verse 2 to verse 16? Right? In 15 verses, 16 verses, there's, there's no way he could write this name, this name, this father, to this father, to this father. What we have in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 is the linkage, the ancestral linkage of Jesus as Messiah all the way back to Abraham. Like, Dean, why are you making such a big deal about this? Because at some point you're going to read Matthew uh, chapter 1 or somebody's going to come along and they're going to say, hey, the math doesn't work. Like, there's not just 14 generations from Abraham to David. There's a lot more generations in there, right? But remember, the term is begat. It's the linkage. So what in the world does it mean that there's seven sevens from Abraham to David, from David to the exile, and from the exile all the way to Jesus? What does that mean? Why did Matthew say it that way? I think he's pointing out something very specific. Seven is a critical number. You know this in Hebrew literature going all the way back to creation. God creates the world six days. And on the seventh day, he Sabbathed. He rested. And if you don't think Sabbath rest is a big deal uh, to God, think about it from this perspective. God creates Adam and Eve on what day? Six, right? He creates them on the sixth day. So the first day, Adam and Eve, the first full day they ever live is day number seven, which means the first day that Adam and Eve ever live, what do they do? They rest all day. The first day. If you don't think the Sabbath was a big deal right to God, just look all the way back to creation. So there was this rhythm that God established in Hebrew life where every seventh day you rest. You don't work. Take time. You reflect on God, your relationship with him. If necessary, you repent, turn your heart, God's direction, right? You welcome his kingship again. 
into your life. Your spirit is renewed. But it wasn't just that there was a Sabbath day. There was also a Sabbath year. Every seven years, the ground laid fallow. And you didn't farm and you didn't work it. On the sixth year, you did a little extra work. You saved up a little more because the seventh year was a Sabbath year. But every seventh seven, same term Matthew uses in Matthew chapter one, every seventh seven, every 49 years, we talked about this this summer in the label series, was what was called the Jubilee year. It's established in Leviticus chapter 25, if you want to go back there and do the research and look it up. The, the year of Jubilee was crazy. Because in the year of Jubilee, if you had mortgaged property, let's say you had gotten out over your skis in a, in a business deal or something, and you didn't have enough money, and you had to mortgage your family's property to somebody else to pay off your debts, in the year of Jubilee, your family got your land back. If you had become an indentured servant to someone um, because um, for whatever reason you couldn't pay your debts and so you had to work for someone to try and pay off. When you got to the year of Jubilee, when you got to the 7-7 seven, seven every 49 years, you're free. You're no longer indentured. To all, all personal debts are also forgiven. Now, if you're a business person at all and you're sitting you're thinking, that's a terrible, that is a terrible business practice, right? Let's say, so let's say you loan someone money in year number 47, right? And they default on their loan. You're telling me two years later, right? You've just got to give them all the collateral back? That's terrible, right? Let's say someone borrows a bunch of money from you. They go out, they waste the money in year 48. You're telling me in year 49, you're just like, hey, no problem. You wasted a bunch of my money, but eh, nope. There's, if you're answering the question that way, you're actually kind of spot on. <laughs> the reality is there is no significant evidence in the Old Testament that the Hebrews ever consistently, or maybe even at all, practiced the principle of the year of Jubilee. Why not? Because it would cost you a fortune. But it's in the law for a reason. What's the reason? Why does Matthew say he's the 7-7? Seven, seven. Jesus is the 7-7. Seven, seven. Jesus is the 7. What is he trying to say? That even though you and I try and be our own messiahs, even though we are separated from God by our sin, that that's Okay. Because Jesus is our jubilee. And even though we can't save ourselves, Jesus is the one and he came, he left heaven, came to earth, right? He entered human form. And he subjected himself to death. Philippians chapter two says, even the death of the cross. Why would he do something like that? The message of Christmas is that God has left heaven, come to earth. He's Emmanuel, he's God with us. And it cost him a fortune to give his life, to die on a cross, to pay the price for our sins. So, you're a sinner. Merry Christmas, <laughs> right? Let's all just say it out loud. I'm a sinner. On three, ready? One, two, three. Is that hard to say? Let's say it again on three, ready? One, two, three. I'm a sinner. But it's okay. Because you can't save yourself. You can't fix yourself. It's, it's okay. Because Jesus came to provide for you and provide for me what we could never provide for ourselves. So the microscope, you dial it in, nobody belongs. The telescope, you span back out the big picture story of Jesus. Anyone can come, anyone can belong. Which leads us to the last point, the message of the stethoscope. 
which tells us that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is really uncommon king who wore an uncommon crown. And the message of the stethoscope is that it's a heart check. That the king is about your heart. So the authority of the king sits on a throne. God in a manger, right? He comes to us and we tend to want to put our lives about that much under his authority. And retain as much control as we can. And to do things our way as much as we can. So if we were to put a stethoscope on you spiritually this morning, where do you, where do you find yourself? We all think we can be our own messiahs to some degree. We all think we can outsmart the scriptures. We can do this our way. And then we crash. And there are consequences tough moments along the way and we are reminded that the only way, the best way to live. So it's okay that you think you're your own Messiah. That's all right. Because once you realize in whatever way that is that you're not, the good news of Christmas is that he is God in the manger and he is God in the manure. Christ in the message and Christ in the mess of your life. King of kings, Lord of lords. So in just a second, I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we are going to sing a song called What a Beautiful Name. Because like I said from the beginning, I don't see the name Mighty God any more so than I see it in this presentation that Matthew leads with um, in Christmas. And the second verse of that song says, you didn't want heaven without us. So Jesus, you brought heaven down. That is the message of Christmas. That he is Emmanuel. That, that he is God with us. Not just God in the manger, but God with you. In the middle of your mess. God with you in the middle of your life because God never, never, never forgets about his people and God never forgets his promises. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful as we think about and as we come to um, the celebration of all that is Christmas. And God, I pray that we will find ourselves. I pray we'll enjoy it all. I pray, God, that we will shop till we drop. I pray that we'll enjoy all the parties and all the family and all that. But in the middle of it, that God, we will say, you are the king. You are the Messiah, the one sent from God. And it all started with this incredible, beautiful name. You are the Messiah, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Yeshua Hamashiach, the one who came to save us. So God, as we sing, I pray that our worship will rise up in front of you this morning, a fragrant aroma as we repent 
as we turn our hearts your direction, as we welcome your grace and your mercy. New again this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.